0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 1-13. through Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water. But by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is true. For there are three that bear witness in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At the beginning of this week, I made a Uh, happenstance uh, treasure discovery, I was in a goodwill and I found a 71-year-old revised standard version of the Bible, uh, leather-bound. It was 99 cents. That's not bad for a 71-year-old book. Uh, The reason I picked it up, though, was not its antiquity, but uh, it's a living benchmark of Protestant theology. The Revised Standard Version came out, I think it's around 1950. The the New Testament was was 1946. I think the whole Bible came out about 1952. Um, If you flip through this book, because this is a a first printing of it, uh, and you go looking for certain passages in the New Testament, you will literally not find them. If you go looking for the account of the woman taking adultery, it's not in the text. If you go looking for the traditional ending of the Gospel of Mark, everything after chapter after verse eight is missing. It's not in the text. Um, when this was released in the early fifties, this caused a, a backlash against the Revised Standard Version. There was an outcry in the Christian church and further printings actually put those passages back in but that testifies to the kind of mindset the translators had and the publishers had Uh, and they did not add back in everything they took out. Uh, There is a famous passage in the scripture reading that we just read that you will not find in the revised standard version today if you pick one up, although there will be a footnote, whereas there wasn't a footnote in the original uh, publication. It is First John 5: seven and eight. It is device, d- derisively called by critics the Johnine comma, which means that they just see as a comma. they don't actually take it as a biblical passage. It is, uh, in some ways, the most debated passage of scripture in the entire New Testament. Um, there is a certain shibboleth out there. When I use the term shibboleth, it's a reference to the Old Testament, where uh, there had been a battle between the northern and southern kingdoms, and this other the. Southern, the Northern kingdom had lost very badly. It was trying to retreat back to its home, and the Southern Kingdom folk trapped them at a river. And whoever was trying to cross the river, they made him say the word "shibboleth" because those of the North pronounced it differently than those of the South. And so you got caught if you were using the Northern dialect. It's come down into English. If there's a shibboleth, it's a a way of talking that kind of lets people know who you really are, like. Um, if you don't like to say John Calvin, but you say John Calvin, well, you kind of know who that person is. They're pretentious. Uh, or if they say Augustine instead of Augustine, same kind of deal. Well, there's a there's a shibboleth in academia that if you want to really be academic-minded, you reject this passage. You say, that doesn't belong in 1 John, that somehow crept into the text, And anyone who who supports that passage has to be the dreaded King James Version only. Uh, There is a certain segment of the Christian church that believes that the King James Version of the Bible is effectively inherently perfect, and that's the only version they will use. If you support this passage, well, you must be King James only, even though I read it to you in a translation that wasn't the King James, and it can be found in the Geneva Bible, the modern English version, the Greens version, the Webster's version, the Young's literal version. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm skipping some others. These are just ones I could find on my own shelf. You must be King James only if you believe this passage to be in scripture. Well, obviously I'm not, and I do believe it is in Scripture, Uh, I kind of have my hackles up. This sermon comes out of a conversation that I had with my son-in-law over this passage, and also some interactions I've had with other believers who have uh, basically informed me they're smarter than me because I hold to this passage and they don't. But uh, it's an important passage, and the reason why it is debated as such is because it definitely seems to teach the Trinity. There are three that bear record in heaven, the, the Spirit, the Word, the Father, these three bear record, and they are one. Uh, it seems to be a direct reference to our doctrine of the Trinity, and um, those who oppose it say, well, the Trinity is not found anywhere in the New Testament, this has just been added in uh, conveniently for the doctrine of the Trinity, They will also tell you that to prove the doctrine of the Trinity, that the Godhead has three persons in it, in its one unity, you don't need this passage, because you can find passages in Scripture that clearly say Jesus of Nazareth is divine, or the Holy Spirit is divine, and Since the Father is assumed divine, the New Testament teaches the divinity of all three persons, and they're not wrong. A quick survey of of the New Testament, you can find a passage like Romans 9, 1-5. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So, just... Flipping open Romans, you can find the passage that says Jesus is the eternal God. There are several passages like that in the New Testament. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, you read this about the Holy Spirit. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So, in this passage, the Apostle says, the Lord is the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit is divine. You don't have to have this passage to establish their divinity, so it's not that important whether you believe it is in the text or not, because Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is how do you establish the actual threeness of the Trinity that there is actually three persons that are divine in the one Godhead. Why not more? I mean, the Spirit is God. God. Christ is God, fine, the Bible teaches that, your Mormon friend would agree. A Mormon would tell you that Jesus of Nazareth was God, and he would tell you the Spirit was God. He would also tell you that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all were at one time like you, but they achieved Godhood. And their oneness is their purpose because they are involved in the creation of this world. Um, they are gods, and one day you will be a god like them because the ultimate end of true religion is to accede to godhood. Has anybody heard this before from Mormonism? It's true. It sounds rather shocking, but it is the theology of Mormonism, God became as you are so that you can become as he is, literally, wholly, and truly. So if you ever want to become God and partake of the divine essence as a part of the Godhead, you ought to become a Mormon because that's how things work out. Or you could be Hindu. In Hinduism, there is listed in the Vedas 3,333 separate gods but the uh, the list is open ended and the list is open ended because through uh, ascending on the wheel of samsara, the wheel of reincarnation uh, you move upwards and you ultimately pass through godhood so if you practice your religion rights you can again become a god. And that's not the end game for Hinduism. The end game is passing beyond godhood, finally becoming a cow, which is above the gods, and then passing on into the nothingness, effectively. But the point is, you have ancient religious traditions that teach men can become god. There are millions of people who hold to that doctrine that the Godhead does not have to be limited to three, in fact is not, that there is not a unity in the Godhead that excludes men, but rather men can be part of it. If you were talking to one of the one billion people who are in India, how would you tell them it's not true that men can become gods? What passage would you turn to and say Godhood is limited to God and you're not God? Well, without this passage, you're in a bit of a pickle because you have the New Testament saying Christ is God, the Spirit is God, the Father is God, but there is nowhere in the New Testament that limits the Trinity to threeness except this one. And if you don't believe me, ask the Muslim who was debating uh, White, whatever his name is. James White. What now? James. James White. He actually scored some very heavy points on that when he brought that up. He said, you don't believe this passage is in the New Testament. Why do we limit Godhood to merely three persons? And White didn't do a very good job at that point in the debate because he really couldn't. This passage is the passage that does that. Uh, One could look at the various evidences for whether this passage should be here, the external and internal. You will be told that there are 2,500 copies of the New Testament from antiquity, and this passage is only found in eight of them. I'm talking about Greek manuscripts. That is true, but it's also false. The manuscripts that come down to us from antiquity tend to be fragments. There there are some whole New Testaments, but they're very, very rare. Most of these documents they're talking about are pieces of books, pieces of the New Testament. And of those 2,500 manuscripts, only 40 of them include 1 John in any way. So it becomes 8 out of 40 It also appears in a bunch of the Latin manuscripts we have from antiquity. Um, There is a church father who seems to quote it. His name is Cyprian, and he is from the third century. He writes, The Lord says, I and the Father are one, and again it is written of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, that sounds to me like a quote from our passage from the 300s by Cyprian. Uh, There's the issue of internal evidence where if you read it in the Revised Standard Version or the English Standard Version or something in effect, um, if you go back to the manuscripts they're based on, it's fractured Greek. It's not actually in proper Greek style. It's broken language. And it is also incomprehensible. It says the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit is the truth because there are three witnesses, not just one. The Spirit is the witness, the truth, what we're talking about, because three witness. And so you have the passage say one is three. That is either gibberish or that is very, very mystical and I've seen ministers take either tact, really, in preaching it. But if you read it in what comes down to us in the received text, the Greek is actually pristine. It, it's written like a Greek sentence, and it is clear. But I don't really want the sermon to go that route this morning. Rather, I want to look at the passage and what John seems to be doing. Why is John bringing up the Trinity? What is he telling us that requires a reference to it? If you look at the passage, in verse 1 through 3, we read this. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. The reference to those who are begotten of him is plural. What John has said is, if you say you love God, you're going to love God's kids. If if God has a family and you claim you love him, well, you've got to love those who are in his family. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So here is the definition of how love works. God has given commandments to his people. These commandments are not legalism, they actually are the outworking of love. And so, if you love God, you'll love your fellow believer. You'll love your fellow believer by keeping God's commandments. For this is the love of God to keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, John is saying this in contrast to what he has been saying at other places in this letter. Um, consider 1st John 2, verse 9 through 11. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Or jump up to chapter 4. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And then the quintessential passage, which is often quoted from 1 John, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, Even now many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So John is writing this letter to a group of Christians who have obviously experienced a fracturing of their church, you have had people who've been in the church, but they haven't really loved the other people in the church, and they've left, and they, they have left saying, I'm, I'm leaving Christianity. I'm, I'm walking away from the Christian religion. I don't believe this anymore. Uh, and they have been abusive of believers. That seems to be the context that our passage is going into. And so we're dealing with um, who's real. Who is really a servant of God? You know, well, you obey God's commandments, you love his kids, that sort of thing. Um, They have been born of God, says John, who do that, and this is because they have overcome the world. It is verse 4. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. So John writes to the Christians who have had people leave them, who have had people renounce the Christian faith, walk off from them, and said, you have overcome the world, you do love God, this is because, A, you have faith, and it's specifically faith in Jesus as the Son of God. He came to you by, quote, water and blood. The reference seems to be uh, to his baptism where he dedicated himself to God's service, but also to the cross. He, Christ was, was so willing to come to you that he went to a bloody cross. Now, there's, there's some debate about water and blood, but that seems to be the best understanding of it. Christ has, has become the focus of your faith because he has been willing to go to these lengths to reach you. Um, he is what gives you to have overcome the world. Do you think that those who walk out of the Christian faith would agree to that? Well, the answer is absolutely no. They have walked away from the Christian faith, specifically walking away from Christ, who is the center of that faith. They have said, the Jesus that you follow is a fake. The Jesus that you follow is not really the Messiah. If you go through 1 John and you look at who these people are that John's talking about, they seem to be people who were Jewish They had embraced certain doctrines of a religious tenet called Gnosticism, and they had been professing Christians for a while, but they had come to the point where they said, we want a Messiah who is different than this Messiah. For whatever reason, we don't really like Jesus as the Messiah, but we're looking for a Messiah. We expect God will send one, But we have decided that Jesus of Nazareth isn't that Messiah. So John writes and says, you've overcome the world. You have faith in Christ. Uh, That's why you're a different kind of person. That's why you love your brothers. Those who have walked out are specifically saying, you have been deluded. You are holding to a religion that you think will save you but will not. Rather, you need to come with us to wherever it is we're going if you want to be saved. It's kind of the age-old game. Today, if you want to realize what a heretic you are, all you have to do is go online and post something religious, and about 15 people will descend upon you to tell you why what you believe is nonsense. Right? Right? I mean, that's the way humanity works. If you change your belief for one of these people who tell you that your belief is nonsense, you'll get another 14 people writing and telling you, well, that's nonsense. So, no matter what, you're somebody's heretic, and most people believe uh, you're going to hell. I mean, that's just the way humanity works. Well, these people who have left were saying that to the Christians, you're poor, deluded fools you put your faith in Jesus, but Jesus is not the Messiah. Uh, we, we have figured that out. What does that do to the believers? How do they respond? Well, as human beings, when somebody gets up in your face with an absolute assurance that you're incorrect, it tends to strike at our hearts. And we begin to ask the question, are we correct? I mean, we're wagering heaven or hell based on this Jesus of Nazareth and these very religious people are assured that we are deluded. Are we deluded? Is it possible? Well, uh, maybe. So where do we look to make sure that... This is true. Well, John continues on and tells us um, it is the Holy Spirit that is the chief evidence of the truth of Jesus. Verse 6b says, Jesus Christ, uh, not only by water, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who bears witness, Because the Spirit is truth. And for some reason, the New King James doesn't translate the the there, which seems very significant to me. John literally says the Spirit is the truth. Um, John has been emphasizing the Holy Spirit all the way through this letter. Uh, In 1 John 4, 4, he says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them that is, the people who are telling them now that you're deluded, you have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who is John talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. John, 1 John 2, 20-21 and 27. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, Because you do know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Verse 27 But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. So John has been returning to the concept of the Holy Spirit anointing the Christian believer again and again in First John, and here he is kind of coming to the crescendo of that idea. These people who, he has to warn them about not believing every spirit, right? Well, what do you think is happening if you have to test the spirits? Well, somebody is claiming to talk for a spirit. And they're saying, I have a message for you. Jesus is not the Christ. How does that passage run, that very famous passage? Beloved, believe not every spirit, any spirit who does not confess that Jesus the Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And the term come is in the perfect tense, meaning has made a difference, something has intensely happened. Um, You don't write that if somebody's not saying that. And so they're saying that and John is saying would the Holy Spirit be among you and on you and be transforming you if that were true? If it were true that Jesus was not the Messiah would the Holy Spirit manifest himself among you the way he is? Now We need to stop here for that profound truth. For John to write that, he has to assume that his uh, recipients will amen that. Is the Holy Spirit among them? Well, if he's not, these words are going to sound very hollow. But the Spirit is among them. When John writes, okay, the Spirit testifies to you and teaches you all things the people who are being accused of being deluded can say, I have experienced the Spirit. The Spirit is among us. He has given us this anointing. He is sanctifying us. He is causing us to grow out of the world. The Spirit is real. The Spirit is an experience that I am having. Uh, The Spirit has come to, to indwell me. If John can't count on that being the response, the letter is going to fall flat. But he knows that he can because it's been real. He says the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit is testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. You will be told 200 times a day Jesus is not the Messiah. But the Spirit bears record the Spirit is the truth. And then in the ESV or the NASB or something like that, you have that strange passage. He is the truth because there are three truths. There's the water and the blood. What does that mean? Well, it's very hard to draw any meaning out of that if that's what you're looking at. But what you read in the, the received text is the Spirit is the truth. There are three witnesses to you that Jesus is who he says he is. There is the dedication that Christ demonstrated in giving himself over to the Father at his baptism. Uh, At his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. The Father said, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. That's a powerful witness to Christ on earth. There is the blood. He was willing to serve God to the point of death, And Paul, the apostle, will emphasize that in Romans. He will say, you know, barely will anyone die for a righteous man, maybe for a good man, but not likely. But Christ proved his love in this. He loved us by pouring out his blood for us. Well, John cites that, and he says, this is a testimony that Christ is really the Messiah. He loved us enough to go to a bloody cross on earth, And then there is the witness of the Spirit among us, but that is not the only place the Spirit is bearing witness. The Spirit is bearing witness with the blood. He is bearing witness with the the water. But that is only on earth. In the realms of heaven where you desire to go, right? I mean, ultimately, life is not permanent. Every single person in this room is going to go before God in the heavenly realms. Every single human that has ever walked the earth has an appointment with God. Um, You would like to hear when you get there that what you have embraced is real, right? I mean, it would be truly a letdown if you walked into heaven and you met Odin. That would be just really not great. So John says the Spirit is not just of the earth, but the Spirit is in heaven. The Spirit is one with the Son and the Father. He is God himself. He is testifying to you on earth by being among you, sanctifying you, ministering to you, speaking to your heart. But when you step into heaven you will find this same spirit. And this same spirit is testifying about you there. This is someone who has overcome the world. This is someone who has been given faith. This is someone who has been claimed by Christ. That voice that has testified in your heart is shouting it from the battlements of heaven. You belong to God in Christ. And there in heaven, the Spirit is merging his voice with the other two persons of the Godhead. The Word, Jesus Christ, is also saying, this is my child. The Father is saying, this is a a member of my son's country. I gave this person to Christ and the Spirit is saying, this person belongs to Christ. So the Spirit is the truth, because the Spirit is not only testifying on earth, he is testifying in heaven. So if you are looking for a testimony that spans all creation, not just the earth, it is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is saying, you belong to God in Jesus Christ. Now, the very highly educated Jewish Gnostic has assured you, you're a deluded fool. But God is testifying about you in heaven and on earth that you belong to him, and you have to decide, will I receive the testimony of these very arrogant religious people, or will I receive God's witness that is being given in heaven and earth? And... What this passage is really about is your eternal security. Listen again as it ends. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. The witness God has said on earth, the witness he is saying in heaven, the witness of God is greater. For it is the witness of God which he has testified of his son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Do you see how this theme continues to work its way in this book? You have the Holy Spirit within you. People will lie to you day in and day out. It will not always be some Jewish Gnostic. It will be something else. It will be who knows what. But you have the witness of God in your heart. That is subjective, but that doesn't mean it's not real. We Reformed people like to emphasize the objective. There's a reason for that. Um, Subjectivity can be taken way too far. But the truth is, our Christian religion has some very subjective elements that are nevertheless very real. Have you experienced the Holy Spirit within you? You'll never be able to prove that in a laboratory, but have you experienced the Holy Spirit within you? Has the Spirit testified to your spirit? Has he pointed you to Christ? Has he sanctified you and blessed you? Has he pulled you out of darkness into light in a very, very real way that you will never be able to convince Richard Dawkins of, but it's still true? John continues to return to that, You have experienced the Spirit. You have the witness in yourself. Um, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, why would John write, He who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son does not have life. Well, he is repeating effectively something he has already said, Back in chapter 4, he who has the Son has the Father. He who doesn't have the Son doesn't have the Father also. Why would John write that? Well, it's because the world is filled with very religious people who believe that they are right with God, but they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, and they think they are in good standing with God. The world is filled with people that will testify to you that their laying hold of God without Christ is legitimate, has saved them, they are pious, religious, and good, and John is saying they are not. He is saying that they are lying to you, they don't have God. That is extremely, extremely unpopular today. If you go and say, you claim to have God, but you don't have Christ, you don't have God, the world will go apoplectic on you. How dare you tell somebody that their religious uh, experience and understanding is not true? Well, I can dare become a Christian, and that's the, the very essence of the New Testament. The New Testament is exclusive. Jesus is the only way to God. And these people who are lying to the believers are saying, we're still waiting for a Messiah. We don't have him yet. He will be coming, but he's not your Messiah. I'm really not sure why they didn't like Jesus of Nazareth. The answer could be a hundredfold. But whatever it was, they wanted a Messiah that was not like the one God really gave. And John says they don't have eternal life. They have not overcome the world. They are not given the promise of everything God offers, but you are. You see, the reference to the Trinity here is offhanded. If I wanted to prove the doctrine of the Trinity, how would I write it? you know, it's a debated doctrine, I want you to believe this, Uh, it's not really in the New Testament. I'd probably spell the doctrine out at length, because I'd want you to understand what we're talking about, I would want you to, to really be convinced. I wouldn't offhandedly reference the doctrine while talking about the eternal security of the believer. But that's exactly how we find it. You are eternally secure because God has sent in the Spirit, who is one of the Trinity, to testify, to seal you, to sanctify you. He is testifying in heaven that you belong to him. Uh, you are eternally secure. Let the entire world call you a fool and tell you that at the day of your death, you are going to find out that you hoped in vain the Word, the Spirit, and the Father say otherwise. That's a offhanded reference. And it has a very solid ring of truth to it, to me. I find the internal evidence of this passage very compelling. Um, I also find it very comforting. God has revealed himself to us and everyone who the one God is, is testifying I belong to him, uh, that warms the cockles of my heart. Before we end this, though, we need to look at the concept of the Spirit in 1 John. It is such a, a concept in the book that you can't really understand it without it, What does it mean that the Spirit has anointed us? What's going on? Well, if we were to read through all five chapters, these are the things that we would find. We would find that the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus Christ and always glorifies Him. Um, Reformed Christians are just as supernatural-minded as any Pentecostal you will ever meet. We believe in the Holy Spirit, we believe the Spirit is a living reality, we believe that we experience God on a daily basis, that's extremely supernatural. But we are assured by the apostles of Jesus that the passion of the Spirit is to point to Jesus the Christ. That is the major theme of 1 John, Jesus is really the Christ, and the Spirit is always pointing to him. We have to test the spirits, suggesting there are other Spirits. And one of the things other Spirits will do is they will point away from Jesus being the Christ. There is a thousand different ways that can happen. But the Holy Spirit will always point you to the the Christ. That's what he's here for. Um, He will teach the believer all the truths about Christ. And will use those truths to sanctify him and to give him greater spiritual understanding. Uh, There are a lot of people who would view that as a very boring statement. The Spirit has been given to me to teach me, to sanctify me. No, no, I want the Spirit to give me superpowers. I want the Spirit to uh, enable me to become the center of attention. I want the Spirit to be flashy. I want the Spirit to, to work wonders. If you see things through God's eyes, the sanctification of men is about the most wondrous thing that can ever happen. Because if you see human beings for what they are, from God's perspective, the very fact that God can give man life is about the biggest miracle that I've ever seen. But that's what the Spirit does. He applies Christ. He points to Christ. He teaches the things of Christ. In chapter 2, when John says, you have an anointing, it is right after he talks about these false teachers saying, uh, we're leaving. And he is reminding the believers, the Spirit whispered in your ear, this is not true. What is true is Christ. The Spirit teaches. The Spirit sanctifies. Um, The Spirit assures the believer of his standing before God. And that's the very focus of the passage we're looking at. Um, If left to your own obedience, if left to your own sense of assurity, you will be panicked. But the Spirit will always be testifying in your heart, if you belong to Christ, you belong to Christ. I don't know if you have ever had that dark moment where uh, there is nothing in you at this moment that makes you believe that you are a redeemed child of God except the Spirit saying you are a redeemed child of God. But if you have ever had that dark moment, you will be very, very grateful for the Spirit. The Spirit will not let the darkness snuff out the light. The Spirit will always testify you belong to Christ. Uh, It's His desire to do so. God wants that. And then finally, we didn't really touch on this in this sermon, but if we were to survey the book, the Spirit protects you from other spirits. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 4 and 6. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God, he who who knows God hears us, he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Did you know that the entire race of mankind is spirit-filled? There is no such thing as a non-spirit-filled human being. You'll hear Christians say, you need to seek to be spirit-filled. Honestly, you don't need to seek that. You're you're born spirit-filled. The question is, what spirit are you filled with? If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, you learn that every lost sinner is filled with the spirit of the prince and the power of the air. We are filled with a devilish spirit. But we're spirit-filled. But in 1 John, we are told, You have overcome the world, that theme which we were looking at in chapter 5, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They talk from the spirit that is in them, and people who have the spirit that is in them listen to them. We talk from the spirit of God. Those who listen to us, the reason why they listen to us is the spirit is in them. There are two spirits. There is the Holy Spirit, and there's the spirit of death, depravity, and evil. If you belong to God in Christ, you are filled with the spirit that will protect you from that spirit of death, darkness, and evil. He is greater than any spirit that is in the world. No Christian can be demon-possessed because every Christian has a sign on his soul that says, Property of the Most High, and it's been stamped there by the Spirit. So that is what the Spirit is all about in 1 John. And they, the list is not closed. I mean, if you were to go to some of the other epistles, the Spirit gives uh, ministries or gifts, and there's other things. But the apostles really emphasize the Spirit as a sanctifying, teaching, protecting presence. Um, one could come away from a sermon about the Holy Spirit and say... Uh, it's emotionalism. It's, uh, it's becoming very happy. That's not the spirit. The spirit is these things. But John points to the Christian community and tells the Christians, you know you have experienced him. You know that. I can use that as an argument. And this spirit which is in you is going to protect you. The spirit that is in you is going to seal you. This spirit is going to walk with you to heaven And when you get to heaven, you're going to find the Spirit is proclaiming you belong to Him. The Spirit is more powerful than any lie you will ever be told. Thanks be to God.